Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Greetings, dear listeners. In today's podcast, I conclude the tale of how I won the Hanenkam on a press junket to Kitzbühel. While the tone of this piece may sound like a long complaint, in fact, I miss the halcyon days of yore when such efforts to sway the press were commonplace. As always, I encourage you to drop by realskiers.com and bathe in the knowledge therein preserved. And now, How I Won the Hanenkam and Other Life Lessons, Part 2. The raison d'etre of this extravagant expedition to Austria was to enhance the market share of Austrian brands in the U.S., and the linchpin to swaying brand loyalty was to have been attendance at the Hanenkam downhill. But tropical conditions required the World Cup to relocate the race to St. Anton, so that's where our hosts rerouted our contingent of American dealers and press. There were, however, about five dealers and one ink-stained scribe who could not bear the thought of leaving Kitzbühel behind, unskied, sacrificing the day instead to standing course side while others got to slide downhill. As others boarded transport to St. Anton, we renegades headed for the gondola. We were self-aware enough to know that we weren't being good guests, hence our self-anointed nickname, the AAA Team for American Assholes in Austria. We worked our way lift by lift to the upper snowfields, where we found acres of rolled corduroy that was like a steeper veil frontside, only without the speed restrictions. One of our number was launched over a roller and onto the disabled list, but otherwise a lovely time was had by all. Our explorations led us to some mid-mountain terrain where the low snow levels exposed fencing and barbed wire meant to constrain the cattle that summered here. As a trailside amenity, this took some getting used to. The American ski experience is so sanitized, it's unimaginable that the essentials of animal husbandry would coexist on the same slopes and with equal privileges as skiers. As long as one maintained a sharp eye for knee-level obstacles, the skiing was very entertaining, the snow softening to a nearly spring-like corn. By late afternoon, our group had split off into pairs, reducing my companions to one, namely Woody Jones of Manchester, New Hampshire, the soft-spoken scion of a ski shop family, who convinced me that the thing to do was run the Hanenkamm. We are at a mid-mountain chalet, knocking back pear schnapps, the sun slipping into the jagged teeth of the alpine horizon, when Woody utters the line spoken in every action movie, Let's get out of here. We strapped on our rental skis and skied down the icier slopes that led to the start shack of the world's most terrifying two minutes of travel. We paused while still on the open slope before darting into the woods that sheltered the start. A local burger came out on the deck of his chalet and called out to us in carefully enunciated, thickly accented English, Do not go down. It is too dangerous. I looked at Woody, whose placid expression said, Not to worry, this guy's a kook. But the concerned citizen was determined our deaths would not be on his conscience. He was a little louder when he yelled, Go back and take the lift down. I have seen you ski. You will die. Woody just waited him out until our haranguer turned back in disgust at our intractable stupidity. You ready? was all Woody said as he slid across clattering boilerplate to the start shack. As I stood in the same hallowed hut, that once saw the likes of Klammerer, Zerbriggen, and Girardelli nervously dig in their poles just past the start wand. The words of the well-meaning local rang in my ears. I have seen you ski. You will die. At that moment, my money was on him. 
You see, the first few feet out of the shack are such a precipitous plunge that the start of the Hani was long regarded as the fastest non-motorized means of accelerating a human being. As I looked down through the fading light at the lumpy, milky spindle of ice that was our only route down, my attention fell to my ski tips, and fear caused all organs capable of the feet to retract. I was on a 200-centimeter, then absurdly short, recreational slalom ski, the battered edges of which could not cut margarine on a warm day. The bases had taken structuring to a new level, deep gouges running in all directions, which would help to gutter away blood from the accident scene that was sure to ensue. But what could I do? Woody was already below me, perched at the top of the mousafala, tapping his poles impatiently into the cold, cruel ice. Immediately out of the start, I ignobly threw my skis sideways and stood on the downhill edge as hard as I could, and that is exactly the posture I retained during a blistering sideways descent towards the woodman. Some adrenaline reserve enabled me to stop right at the brink of a pitch that made the first hundred yards look like what the French call le pique-nique. The mousefalla isn't so much a pitch as it is a freefall, a section of the course no racer really ever touches. Some unfortunates, such as Tahoe's own Bill Hudson, have missed this fallaway turn entirely and were launched into terra incognita. At the top, I set the front of my skis in moist pasture land, while the burrs on my tails clung tenuously to the see-through icicle that was all that remained of the ski run. When I released my edges, I accelerated like a funny car dragster, wobbling crazily yet inexorably gaining speed at an exponential rate. I fired into the forest below, believing the worst was behind me. Ha! Or as they say in Austria, Achtung! Just ahead lay the Steelhound, which simply should not be legal. Newtonian physics says a body entering the top of this bowling ball topography at any speed, much less the customary 70 miles an hour, must fly into the forest planted helpfully at the bottom, just where the run goes off sharply stage right. The low probability of overcoming the laws of nature and actually hitting the exit is acknowledged with an inelegant network of netting intending to catch those who sink too low and funnel them over the frayed nylon back onto the course. Woody was made for this moment. If you ski New Hampshire on a regular basis, particularly those backwaters where not knowing how to operate the snowmaking equipment is a local badge of honor, the convex ice slab over hay surface of the Stielhang is mother's milk. Woody's old-school Austrian technique and dedication to conditioning also served him in good stead, allowing him to etch a crisp, elegant series of edge sets on the knobby ice. Racers ski the Stielhang in one bracing turn. I did not. I skied the grass. Finally, I had found the slope conditions my skis were prepared for, where they exhibited their best behavior. The pitch was a plunge, and the turf was just slick enough to simulate sliding on snow. I made as many turns as my legs and lungs would allow, eventually exhaling my throat lining when my skis skittered back onto the narrow ice flow that continued down through the forest. By now, it was no longer late afternoon. It was knocked. Any visual clues proved useful, as there was an intriguing differential in the gliding properties of the ice ribbon on which we were skiing and the increasingly gooey grass on its immediate perimeter. One slip offline and self-arrest would be sudden, swift, and leave scars. Anyone familiar with this infamous course, for a terrific synopsis you can't beat Paul Hockman's November piece in Play magazine, knows the perils that still lay between us and town. 
featuring fallaway turns and rollers that have fractured mighty men and smashed max performance materiel into smithereens. I'd tell you how we made it if I could remember, but as the night grew darker, there were fewer images cast with enough light to make a metal snapshot. Eventually, only the racket emanating from our bouncing skis provided evidence that we were still on the trail. Here's what I remember from that night. I told everyone, I skied the honey, I skied the honey, I skied the honey, well, sort of. I skied the honey, I skied the honey. Insufferable, I know. The next day was devoted to the rituals of departure and farewells. As I was waiting outside our hotel, I was approached by an executive for one of the top team brands who had served as our hosts. I anticipated an amiable, content-free chat about the weather and such, and instead was treated to a frank assessment of just how uncouth, ill-mannered, and generally dislikable were the American ski dealers he had devoted the past week to wooing. If my verbal assailant, who delivered his spiel of discontent from a halo of thick, black tobacco smoke, had overheard snickers he judged impolitic, it might have had something to do with his ludicrous first-generation hair plugs and penchant for hitting on every frau in the German-speaking world, including those one-third his age. In a word, oi. As a relationship-building exercise, the trip was a fiasco from most viewing perspectives. I suspect some dealers came away with enough goodwill incurred that they shifted a few open-to-buy dollars into Austrian coffers but it would take several more years for the pendulum to swing in Austria's direction, led by the resurgence of Atomic. Now, the brand and dealer landscape has been so irrevocably altered that this vignette from the 1990s seems as remote as the 1890s. Most of the dealers then so royally feted are no longer with us, commercially speaking. Ditto several magazine titles. As Inspector Jacques Clouseau would say, it is all part of life's rich pageant. Now here's the epilogue and moral of our story. The wheel of life is always turning. For all those ski brands who feel they are being mugged in today's market, name one that doesn't, take solace in the tales of renewal such as those experienced by Atomic and the chief who presided over its renaissance, Roge Talermo. When I met Talermo in the mid-1980s, he had recently been reassigned to Solomon's binding division from his prior post at the Finnish subsidiary. It was not the most exalted position, perhaps most generously characterized as a professional development opportunity. The training must have taken, for Talermo rose steadily in the Solomon organization. Several years later, as head of the Finnish conglomerate Amer, he would engineer the acquisition of Solomon and its absorption into the atomic family. Talermo's career trajectory suggests that if you can just manage to hang onto the wheel as it spins, it's bound to land on your number eventually. For further long perorations leading to scant consolation and unactionable advice, please stay tuned to this column, ahem, excuse me, podcast. This has been Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.